Well, welcome to our third season of Knowledge Cast. If you're a regular listener, we're certainly glad to have you back again. And if you're a first time listener, welcome. And we hope that you will enjoy today's podcast and join us back again next week. We've got a great list of guests scheduled for our third season, and you can read about them by going to jackwwilliams.com and scrolling down to the podcast section. Well, today it's a real privilege to have a longtime friend, Mark Yates, with us today. Mark is the Chief Operating Officer of Advanced Collision, Inc., or ACI, out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. And ACI is made up of a series of auto body collision centers, and then they also have ACI Motorsports, which has high-performance race shops, both in Tennessee and Georgia. Mark is a certified public accountant, a certified treasury professional, and has served on numerous boards of charitable organizations, and he currently serves as chairman of My Ideals Board Foundation. Mark has also studied and taught uh, martial arts for 50 years. He is a, a dear friend and a former co-worker and actually was with me the night that I came up with the uh, idea for the Ideals Foundation over 30 years ago. So, Mark, it's great to have you with us. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I want to kind of jump right into uh, a little bit about your upbringing. Um, you know, I have always been impressed with your spirit of wanting to help others. And you kind of grew up in a family where your parents had to deal with some physical and, and health challenges, but they always emphasized how important it was to be there for others when they had needs. Tell us about your experience growing up and how that impacted you later in life. Well, the uh, the main concern in helping others, I, I think, came about uh, uh, very naturally because that's what uh, my parents did, and, and that was what was modeled for us. Uh, my uh, mother uh, uh, contracted polio when she was uh, three years old, and then in addition to that, had some uh, vision difficulties, which uh, uh, problems walking, although she wasn't in a wheelchair uh, for hardly any of her uh, adult life a number of operations when she was a child, uh, but uh, severely handicapped with the uh, with polio. Then my dad was a cerebral palsy victim uh, from birth, and he had a number of operations even uh, as a child and uh, junior high age uh, student, uh, did not learn to walk, was not able to walk until he was about five years old, and a pretty severe uh, speech impediment. Uh, neither of my parents uh, being handicapped, or as we'd say today, uh, uh, disabled uh, would have had to work, uh, but uh, through a unique set of circumstances, uh, they met up uh, when they were both young adults and uh, a romance ensued. And uh, before uh, they knew what had happened, uh, they had uh, they had married. Uh, my dad had begun a business in Nashville, Tennessee with a little concession stand actually inside the Grand Ole Opry. And uh, he moved up to Ohio where my mother was and uh, they later first rented and then bought a house and uh, started a family. Uh, my, uh, I have a younger brother, four years younger, and uh, mainstreamed into the uh, community. So uh, uh, doing things for each other was, uh, was very natural. Uh, my folks were, uh, you know, we would go out in public and I can remember Jack, uh, the first time I realized that when we were in public because of my parents' handicap, uh, handicaps, they uh, walked differently and spoke differently than other people. And so people would uh, kind of stare at them. And I can remember at six or seven years of age, it finally dawning on me that they were looking at my parents 
and not looking at me because we didn't think anything about our parents was any different than anyone, uh, sure. any, anyone else. And uh, so, and they didn't act any different. And I think the key there is uh, they were very accepting of their situation because it was defined by their faith. Uh, they took the attitude and, and expressed to us that our bodies are just the way God intended them to be. And so they just developed coping skills. And uh, they were both uh, interdependent on each other. Uh, mom couldn't drive a car and dad couldn't button his shirt. And so every day, all day long, they naturally assisted each other. And, uh, and we did too. And it wasn't until later in life that I realized uh, uh, what a fantastic environment that was. And, and they were physically disabled, but the relationships in the home they created was extremely healthy. And so uh, just a neat uh, opportunity for my brother and I. Well, I've, I've seen their influence in my 35 years plus of, of our friendship and, and your willingness to, to always be available when people had needs. And uh, I've always admired that. I've, you know about you, and uh, I've always thought about many times the, that story that that you just said, and and what a great experience that turned out to be, in, in terms of how your parents addressed their situation, and and what a positive impact they were not only on you but on so many other people around them. Well, let's let's switch gears to your professional life. Uh, you know, you and I worked together for a number of years, and now. Uh, you've jumped up and, and, and the company that you work for now has a, a president that races professionally in Porsche events. And the company also has a division that also sponsors endurance and driver experience race events. So that sounds like a pretty exciting environment to be a part of. Tell us about how all that works. Well, I joined this company about four years ago. And within about the first three or four weeks, I found myself that uh, I, I'd never been to a professional race before, and I found myself at uh, Daytona International Speedway, uh, and of all things, on pit lane. And uh, <laughs> that was a that was a, a pretty, pretty good first, pretty good position for your first race. Yeah, I uh, I just was uh, just totally taken aback and, and observing and asking questions and so forth. And you know, uh, racing has unbelievable power in those vehicles. And then you combine that power with speed. It's just a very impressive uh, environment. Uh, and the technology that's involved and the science that's involved uh, was just uh, kind of amazing to me. Then within a few months later, uh, I wound up at another uh, name brand uh, racetrack or famous racetrack, uh, Circuit of the Americas in Austin, Texas. And this time uh, I had the opportunity to ride uh, as a passenger, not the driver, uh, in a pace car. And so we led for about two miles, some 90 cars that were at the beginning of a eight hour endurance race. And so as we pulled into the uh, pit lane and heard the roar behind us, uh, it, was, uh, it, was, it was a really neat, uh, really neat experience. And one that I, I had no idea that, you know, I would uh, get to participate in. I'll tell you a couple of things that really surprised me about the racing, because, you know, we're familiar with NASCAR and, Indy 500 and things on TVs over the years, but uh, it had never occurred to me uh, the level of athleticism and physicality that the race car drivers have to have, just how strenuous it is uh, and how they have to exercise and be in shape. 
And uh, you talk about the ability to focus when you're going 160 miles an hour and there's curves coming up and, and people just inches away from you. Uh, I was uh, talking one day to one of the drivers who happened to be an orthopedic surgeon. And he said, well, I, I really like it because I don't have to have my mind on anything else. I can completely, <laughs> completely focus. And, I, and I'm sure he did that in his daily work. But uh, uh, once you add that kind of uh, adrenaline and, uh, and speed and thrill to it, it, it was, uh, you know. It yeah, was those, those drivers don't pay a whole lot of attention to those turn signals, do they? No. You know, uh, another analogy came to me when I was talking to the drivers. You know, we're used to using gas pedals and brakes. And uh, brakes are kind of a nuisance to us. You know, we have to slow down when we come to a, uh, a stop sign or, uh, you know, we go to pull into a parking space. Uh, but the brakes on a race car are a very aggressive uh, mechanism. And those brakes are used not to slow the car down per se. That's not the mindset. The mindset is to uh, go the maximum speed possible. And some of these eight-hour races, the leadership comes down to just a matter of seconds or tenths to seconds of who the winners will be. And those brakes are applied aggressively and everything's recorded on computers uh, to get the maximum uh, speed. Uh, I was talking to the owner of our company, uh, Kurt Swearingen, who uh, races professionally with IMSA and uh, Porsche Carrera Cup. And I said, well, what's it like being out there? And uh, he said, Mark, it's the uh, best I can remember. He's something that's a fact. He said, Mark, it's like trying to control a machine whose objective is to kill you. <laughs> so uh, I said, well, you know, I, I may take a, a ride with you at some point in time, but uh, for right now, I'll just uh, I'll just watch from my close up. So uh, that's a, uh, it's very uh, interesting for uh, a person that's been a non-car guy to have the ability to be involved in this. And uh, the, the customer event work that we do is kind of a combination between providing great customer service for people because it's still a it's still a people business, and then also the camaraderie that comes along with uh, team competition and, uh, and a real desire to win and excel and be the fastest there is. Well, that's that's a great experience. I'm gonna I'm gonna try to catch one of those with you one of these days. Well, I want to switch over to your financial expertise here. Um, to our listeners, Mark comes and speaks every year to our ideals leadership class on the principles of money management and really provides our students a, a wealth of just basic sound principles regarding money. And Mark, I'm gonna put you on the spot here. What do you feel are maybe two or three of the biggest mistakes that people make financially? And how would you recommend uh, people guarding against these mistakes or if they've already made them recovering from those types of mistakes? Yeah, let, let me just preface it by saying working with the ideal students every year on money management, because they're a blank slate, I often tell them, uh, you know, they haven't made money mistakes yet, and uh, they, they've probably observed them. And, uh, you know, we always tell them this is a great opportunity uh, to exhibit leadership and try and give them some skills and then warn them about some things. You know, they'll, they'll soon be freshmen on college campuses and everybody's trying to get them to uh, uh, take their credit card for a t-shirt and uh, uh, spend money all the time and uh, uh, whether they need to or not. And so they're very receptive to listen and to learn. But uh, the common things that, uh, the most common thing that I see 
probably the biggest mistake is just simply a failure to address financial planning or planning. Uh, some people call it budgeting. I try and stay away from that term. Uh, and that lack of planning leads to a consumptive lifestyle. And we tell the students that a consumptive lifestyle is when you just spend on what other people want you to spend money on, or you spend money on things that aren't necessarily right or wrong, and that's up to you, but you have nothing to show for after it's done. And so, uh, uh, you know, I just mentioned that as the first one and go right to the solution on that. I think the solution comes about from doing some planning and just treating it like uh, uh, spending money, especially in these times of inflation, uh, the financial decisions become a little more important and just deciding uh, what's important and how you want to use your financial resources. I, I would tie it back to, to your book and uh, the question and say that in everyone's I believe list, uh, that ought to include uh, some statements about what you believe uh, in the area of finances. What's important to you? Uh, we spend a lot of money on things that uh, marketers and advertising people want us to spend on, but uh, what do you really want to spend money on? And, you know, that, that comes about for a college student uh, being uh, talked into buying a credit card or it can be a mature adult that's uh, being tried to convince someone trying to convince them to buy a uh, timeshare that they might or might not uh, want to be involved in. So that, that planning and purposely avoiding a consumptive lifestyle is probably, uh, uh, you can call it an undisciplined, but I prefer to call it a, you know, not, not planning. So if I can encourage people to plan, seek out sources for advice, uh, uh, that can go a long way. The second biggest thing I would point out is, uh, as a danger or a mistake, is not understanding debt or investing. And uh, debt and investing are, are basically two sides of the same coin. And when we talk about using money wisely, inevitably we come up with talking about a rate of return. And so uh, when people have debt, whether they got into it for a good reason or a bad reason, too much or too little, that's really their very first opportunity to invest. Because uh, as I tell the students, uh, uh, the interest rate that you forego is the interest rate that you earn. So if I have debt at 18%, uh, then I have an opportunity to invest and get an 18% return on that investment debt by retiring it ahead of schedule or sooner than I would have. And if it's only 12%, then I have the opportunity to, run, to uh, earn 12%. And there's a lot of uh, people on the golf course that brag about investments that produce a rate of return a lot smaller than, uh, than 12 or 18%. And it's, uh, it's the same side uh, it's opposing sides of the same coin. And so uh, we encourage people to solve that debt investing problem uh, by working towards becoming a net investor instead of a net borrower. And so as you retire your debt, then you will have money that gets invested. And, and investing money is the same thing as saying loaning money. So if you or I have a house mortgage, someone else is the lender and we're the borrower. And eventually, if we're the investors, we'll be providing an opportunity for someone else to borrow. And uh, that's the magic of compound interest. Uh, and so it, it, we earn a lot quicker than we think we possibly could. Just like when we're paying off a mortgage, it seems to take uh, much longer uh, than common sense would. I guess the big picture look in talking about the I believe and the philosophy is, uh, I really encourage people to make a goal of financial freedom 
versus a goal of financial wealth. Uh, you can have uh, financial bondage with a little money, too little, or too much. Uh, and so if you're controlling the money and the money's not controlling you, uh, then you've got financial freedom. And I think a lot of times uh, when you pursue a goal of financial freedom, uh, financial wealth comes a lot more often. Mark, I know when we were working together, we uh, the very first time we would get uh, a bonus and you and I would get usually the same bonus and you took it to pay off your home mortgage and I couldn't tell you where mine went. <laughs> and that's the difference in where you are and where I am right now. Uh, I want to I want to get to your experience in martial arts here. You have spent really all your young adult life right up to today being involved in martial arts. How'd you get involved and share with us, uh, you are the owner who have earned numerous black belts. Tell us about that. Well, I, uh, as a junior high school student, uh, one a family that was uh, close friends of our family from my uh, church had uh, participated in a uh, foreign exchange student uh, coming and living at their house and retaking uh, his senior year of high school, a young man by the name of Kuichi Arimo. And so since he was Asian, and, and I thought everyone from Japan probably studied judo and karate, uh, you know, I was intrigued to ask him about that. And he answered some of my questions and he'd been in a judo club and was familiar with the Japanese martial arts a little bit. And so uh, for a year, I looked and looked at some books and I saved money uh, for about a year to be able to take uh, three months worth of lessons at a Japanese karate academy. And so I did that after uh, running track and cross country. And at that time, there weren't very many uh, 15, 16 year olds, let alone children involved. And so I, I think if I hadn't gotten the physical endurance uh, of the track and cross country, I don't know that I could have made it because we did a lot of calisthenics and probably similar to you know, training you'd get as a high school student playing football. And so uh, uh, I just fell in love with it. Uh, it was a sport that if you weren't naturally athletic, you could work hard and long enough and you could get a uh, level of skill. And it was, a, it was something that was kind of unique uh, skill to have. And so after that three months, I ran out of money and the uh, instructor seeing that I was committed uh, allowed me to clean the school. And then later on, I was to teach children's classes and would be to earn my dues uh, for training by, uh, uh, by teaching. And that just opened up uh, a world of, uh, of opportunity. Uh, and then at 16 years of age, I received my first black belt in a Japanese system called Goju Kai. And Goju meant hard, soft. So it was a combination of uh, softer judo type moves and, and hard like boxing type moves and uh, did that at age 16. And I, and I guess uh, another thing that happened when you think about black belts is uh, uh, I'm probably a better teacher than I am a practitioner, but uh, my, uh, my daughter at age 16 uh, had studied uh, uh, martial arts for about four years and uh, she earned a black belt at the same age that I had. And I was able hmm. to present her with the same cloth belt uh, that I had gotten. And that was- a, Oh, that's cool. That, I didn't- that yeah, I did that not was know a that. Sweet moment. Of course, you knew uh, my daughter Elizabeth uh, uh, since she was very young. But I've studied about six different systems. I have uh, black belts or advanced black belts in uh, several of them. And uh, 
currently, uh, uh, which would have included the uh, Gojikai that I mentioned, and then Chinese Okinawan Kempo, or a, a brand of uh, uh, Chinese martial art, and then Temple Chinese Boxing. And then currently, for about the last 15 years, I have studied uh, Chen Tai Chi. And Tai Chi is that boring looking slow movement that you see depicted occasionally on uh, ads or on TV. But it's uh, very difficult and very challenging. It's got good science behind it. It has good martial ability. And by martial, I mean self-defense or fighting or, or combat skills. And, uh, and yet it's uh, uh, really challenging to learn and to practice. And it, it has uh, some pretty extreme uh, health benefits. And of course, as people uh, uh, get older and they want to stay involved, uh, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's something that, that becomes attractive. And then I also train in uh, Chinese boxing, which is a realistic uh, uh, form of combat self-defense. And uh, been fortunate to train with some just really top-notch guys and be involved with different law enforcement people and uh, uh, women's self-defense classes and um, things that, uh, you know, meet some needs and something I can do with a technical skill that uh, has kept me uh, uh, physically healthy is, and, uh, and in good physical shape while I'm learning something. Well, I can tell you, um, Mark, when he teaches the class on uh, money management, he starts off uh, by uh, many times bringing up the, the largest student athlete in the class up there and does a few uh, martial arts moves on him. And I can assure you, uh, he has no problem getting the attention of the class uh, after that. Um, and so, Mark, it, uh, uh, it's, always, it's always great when, when, I, when you come down and the kids, it's one of the highlights of our ideals class. Well, Mark, one, uh, of the, one of the things you had asked me about uh, when we were talking before was, you know, does this translate into some other areas of my life? And uh, right, and that is uh, that's certainly been the case. And and when I think of that, the thing that pops in my mind is just gratitude because of the people that I've been able to train with and learn from. Uh, so much more skilled than myself and uh, uh, dedicated for many many years or. Uh, involved at, at, a, at a very high level. But, uh, you know, uh, w when you ask about that, the first thing that came to my mind was, uh, you know, martial arts has been very kind to me. And the kindest it's been to me is uh, when I was in my early 20s, I was teaching a women's self-defense martial arts class uh, for college credit where I attended college. And there was a uh, a young girl in that class who 39 years ago became my bride. So uh, <laughs> martial arts has, uh, has been extremely uh, uh, kind and it has affected my life in the, about every way imaginable. You, you taught Mary then and she's been teaching you ever since, ever, right? Ever since. Well, well, you you, know, you hit, go ahead. Yeah, uh, you know, and with the students, uh, we try and take some of those martial arts principles and apply them to the finances. And you know, one of the things that uh, we talked about this last time was uh, where your head goes, your body will follow. And that's, a, that's well understood by martial artists, whether they're wrestlers or grapplers or uh, uh, karate or judo uh, practitioners. And uh, it's very much the same in finance where your thinking and your knowledge and your decisions lead you in your head, uh, your body and your lifestyle is going to follow. And so the, the martial arts have been like a laboratory. It, you know, it's easier to get discipline and skill in physical movement than it is in other areas of our lives. 
but uh, it can be a laboratory that we can develop those skills. And then it's a more natural step of discipline to carry them over into other areas of our lives, whether it be finances or relationships or uh, leadership. Well, Mark, thanks for that uh, great insight today. As always, it's it's great spending time with you and uh, thanks for making time for us today and, and thanks for your friendship and, and make sure that you stay clear of those race cars as you visit some of those venues. No problem. Uh, well, as we close out another of our podcasts, I wanna uh, thank all of you for making our podcast part of your day. Uh, and by now you're, you know, the regular listeners know what's coming next. I wanna once again challenge each of you to make it your goal this week to be a positive influence in the lives of others. And I look forward to having you back again next week as we welcome another interesting guest. Hey, before you go, we wanted to let you know about Jack's book called The Question, a guide to answering life's most important question. In this book, Jack shares his personal journey that began in 1993 to determine the values, principles, and beliefs that would guide his life. Whether you are a spouse, parent, grandparent, friend, leader, educator, coach, or mentor, Jack's I Believe statements apply to all the roles he has played during his lifetime and can do the same for you. Jack's message applies to all people, ages, and careers. It's an easy read with compelling stories, enjoyable humor, and sincere transparency. The question is now available in ebook and paperback exclusively on Amazon. Go to jackwwilliams.com slash the question to learn more and buy your copy today. Again, thanks for joining us for this episode and join us next week for an all new episode of KnowledgeCast by Ideals.